Welcome tonight to the Hemlock Knots broadcast of an interview with Whitney Horning. She's the author of Joseph Smith Revealed, A Faithful Telling, Exploring an Alternative Polygamy Narrative. So she's with us today. Hi, Whitney. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here and uh, for having a conversation with us and our audience. Um, So I think, you know, some of the people I know have read the book. It's a really good book. Here's the cover of it. And we're actually going to be giving out 20 copies of this today to people who engage with good questions for Whitney and, and provide good comments and things. So we'll um, we'll work that out after the show's over. But if you have any questions during this interview at any time, just throw them in the comments of wherever you're watching, YouTube, Facebook, um, and we will we'll try to get to those at the end during the live Q&A. But first off, Whitney, I think a lot of people have, at least a dozen people have asked me, do you know Whitney Horning? And I'm like, no, I don't. And so I, I called you sometime last year and we talked a little bit, but I think people are generally curious about who you are and, and what makes you tick. And do you mind telling us a little bit about yourself personally? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I am, uh, I am currently a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm also known as Mormons. I was born to good parents and to a large family. I have seven siblings. I was one of the older ones, so I got lots of responsibility right away in life. Um, My parents were just fabulous people. They raised us in the gospel. They took us to church every Sunday. Um, We did family home evening on Mondays, and we had early morning scripture study. Um, I grew up on my grandpa's farm and in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains, and so I learned how to work hard and how to run wild in the mountains. The whole mountain was our playground. It was a wonderful childhood. I learned how to hoe corn and sell corn, um, pick apricots, cherries, herd cattle, bale hay. Um, One of my uncles, I almost ran over with a truck when I was 14 because I didn't know how to drive a stick shift and they threw me in and said drive it while we're bailing hay and so that was my first and last attempt at driving for bailing hay. Um, My father grew up in an inactive home um, and when he was 14 years old he on his own joined seminary, LDS seminary and chose on his own at that age to become active in the church and to be a faithful member of it. Um, And he was for his entire life. Um, Both of my parents um, have since passed away just recently um, and just, but just were wonderful parents. Um, When I was done with high school, I went down to Brigham Young University where I met my husband, Vernon. Um, I graduated from there with a bachelor degree in family, home, and social science with an emphasis in um, uh, counseling, marriage and family counseling. Um, We started, we actually had our first child while I was still a student at BYU. And so when I graduated, I chose to stay home and raise our four children. Our youngest child left home just a few years ago, and so I now work at a high school as an advisor for college and academic um, planning for futures for kids to have a future. That's kind of one of my big things is I want kids when they graduate high school to have some kind of a future to look forward to. And so that is what I get to do every day. I get to work with kids, helping them plan out some kind of path for their life. Um, 
let's see. Um, I'm a sixth and seventh generation Mormon. Um, I have both sides of my family go back to the early days of the LDS church. Um, after Joseph and Hiram were murdered, my family members chose to follow Brigham Young west to Utah. Um, I do have a few ancestors who converted to the church in Europe after Joseph's death, and they also sacri- they did great sacrifices. And I just have an amazing family history of great sacrifice for faith and for the gospel. Um, when I was a little girl, one of my favorite memories as a little girl was my grandmother that I lived on my grandpa's farm. So the grandma, she would take me, she loved doing genealogy. And so she would take me down to the genealogy library in Salt Lake City. And back then, before digital stuff came out, we had microfilm. And so she would look up the records on microfilm and then she would send me running all over the library looking for the paper copies And so that instilled within me an insatiable appetite for detective work and great love for my ancestors and for the sacrifices they made, like I said, to join the church and to be um, faithful members of the church. And just a really great love and respect for my grandmother that I got to spend that time with. Um, One of my, I really was blessed with a great religious background. So while I am a sixth and seventh generation Mormon, every single one of those lines had times when they became less active in the church. And so then the next generation or maybe two or three generations later, they would choose to come back into activity in the church. And so my dad on his side, he was the one who came back into the church. But on my mother's side, her parents were the ones who both were born to less active and inactive homes. And then when my mother was a little girl, her parents had decided to become reactivated. So my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, she was very close to the veil. And so I grew up with not only stories of faith in the church, but also stories of um, stories of ancestors, especially deceased ones that would um, visit with my grandmother. And one of my one of the stories that impacted me the most was she told me that a few years after her father died, now her father was um, a lifelong alcoholic had caused a lot of heartache and distress in their family and um, was very bitter towards the LDS church. And so um, when he died, he died out of the church, um, died from his alcoholism. Well, a few years after he passed away, my grandmother was up late one night rocking one of her sick children and she heard her back door open and she looked up to see her father um, walking in, she jumped up and, you know, Hey dad, dad, here come sit down. You know, let me get you something to eat. And he just looked at her, um, with just pleading in his eyes. And he, he handed her a book. He kind of like extended a book towards her and it was the book of Mormon. And he just said, Erlene, the book of Mormon is true. Please tell your siblings that the book of Mormon is true. So I grew up with um, grandparents and parents that were 
uh, very, very faithful to Joseph Smith, faithful to the Book of Mormon, faithful to the Restoration, faithful to the LDS Church. Um, so it's just, I mean, I, I just have nothing but admiration and love for, for the heritage that I grew up with. So, um, Vern and I, religiously, we have been very active since we got married. Um, we have served in all kinds of callings and we basically just, um, we took seriously the charge to help build the kingdom of God on the earth. And so... That is a little bit about who I was. That's fascinating. Wow. You've had quite the experiences throughout your life. So you mentioned like families strong in the Book of Mormon in the LDS faith growing up. You've learned some things, obviously, that you've put in your book that are that are pretty questionable to some of that underpinning and some of that structure that you grew up with. But um, what's it been like for you to learn these things and yet still hang on to some of those pieces of your faith that you obviously value still? Um, I think it's hard for anyone. I think whenever you learn more truth, it, it when it challenges what you've held on to or been taught your foundation, it can be a very um, disconcerting and disturbing experience and people tend to either completely crumble or they, um, for me personally, I realized and I learned very quickly the only person, person that I could completely trust and could completely have confidence in was the Savior Jesus Christ. And so, you know, it was, it was difficult to find out things and to choose to believe a little differently than the heritage I was um, born with. Um, my mother talked to me just um, Valentine's Day of 2017. My mom expressed her great disappointment that she felt like I was not being faithful to the testimony that they had instilled within me. And then she died suddenly four days later. So that relationship was never healed that way. And then my my father, um, just a short time before he passed away, he told me that he believed I could still repent of the things that I was now um, choosing to believe and come back into a full fledged testimony of the history of the restoration. So like, I want to make that clear. Like my, my parents didn't understand that there is a difference between a testimony in Jesus Christ testimony in prophets like Joseph Smith testimony in scripture, like the book of Mormon and that those testimonies, you don't have to have a testimony of the history that that institution has been teaching you. And so they, they did not quite to them. They, they thought that a testimony had to be in everything. And if I didn't believe the history, then I had lost my testimony completely. And so that was something we never were able to resolve before they passed. And that, that was very difficult for me. That, that okay. was a difficult thing. 
I would imagine. Do you yourself do you yourself feel like you've strayed from the faith or deepened in the faith that you were given as a child from them? Uh, definitely deepened. My my relationship with the Savior is on a more profound and deeper level than it was before. And same with the Book of Mormon. Fantastic. So let's talk a little bit about how you got set up to write a book. At what point in your life did you think, I'm going to sit down and start writing a draft of a book? How did you pick the title? How did you get started? Tell us the, the story there. Okay. All right. So I'm going to give a little bit of background on polygamy in general. Um, as a young child, I became aware of polygamy um, doing family history with my grandmother. Um, I would get the family group sheets that had like 11 wives and each of those wives, children, children. Um, and I started, and then I continued to do family history, uh, through in my adult life. And I started finding more and more records of wives, polygamous wives, separating, divorcing, um, just not being happy. I start. I realized at a young age that uh, polygamy was not a happy institution. That more often than not, there was poverty, a heartache, and a lot of sorrow in those relationships. Um, but you know, I kind of just put it on the back burner as a kid. It didn't really affect me at that time. My dad wasn't a polygamist. Then it had um, living relatives who were, and so it didn't really affect me. But then when I got married, um, then I had to kind of deal with it because I have had the incredible fortune of marrying my best friend. And I have so much love and respect and admiration for my husband um, and he, his dedication, his faithfulness to um, the LDS church and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I remember we were... Gosh, and hadn't been married very long at all. And we were having a discussion. Like we fell in love discussing the gospel. And so it's just something that that's kind of like we have kind of three passions. <laughs> it's, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ and the gospel, our family and BYU football. And so those are kind of always our topics of conversation. And so when we were pretty young married, we were having that conversation. Like, you know, if this was a commandment from the Lord, what happened in the 1890s with them abandoning polygamy? You know, and doesn't the Lord tell us he will fight our battles for us? You know, and so so we just had this kind of just a lot of confusion. Like if this was foundational, if this was a teaching of Joseph's, then what does that mean for the church today that it that it's left that foundational practice, right? And so it's kind of this weird thing I was caught in is kind of this um, catch 22 in a sense, because on one hand we were like, gosh, you know, is God upset with the church that they abandoned this practice because they worried more about the government or, and then on the other hand, I abhorred the thought and abhorred the idea of Vern having another wife. And so I really, and I'm kind of a realistic thinker. Like I really think through like 
what it means. And so it's not just like, oh yeah, well, you'll know you'll deal with that someday. Like I would think through it like, okay, well, what if, what if one of these general conferences, you know, the current president of the church stands up and says, brothers and sisters, guess what? Polygamy's back. And then I think, okay, well, my husband's like a super faithful priesthood leader. And so what does that mean? And what are we going to do if they come to us and they ask him to practice polygamy and what would that look like? And does that mean he goes on dates with women while we're married? I mean, like, what does it logistically and realistically look like? And it would just, it was very painful for me. And we didn't, my husband, I didn't really talk about too much because if I brought it up, he would just, he's never, ever desired it. He's never, you know, we got married. He locked his heart. He's been completely faithful in our marriage and so he would just kind of say, oh, don't worry about it. Like, where is, you know, don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. We're not going to do it. But then you have this hanging over your head, this like um, the ghost of eternal polygamy. That's what Carolyn Pearson wrote a fabulous book called The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy. Because the LDS church is still a polygamous church. Now, they may not practice it for living people or with all the parties living, but they very much practice it in heaven. Um, we had a neighbor at the time who, when we were young married, who had had three or four wives who passed away and he would stand up in church and he'd say, I'm a polygamist. I have three of my wives are in heaven. And so we very much believe that men in the social kingdom um, are going to be polygamists, especially if they're good righteous men. And so that really stressed me out. I, I just, I actually got to the point just a few years before writing this book where I, I actually spent a week praying and crying to the Lord and being like, how can you say you love your daughters equally with your sons and then ask us to share our husbands with other women? That doesn't sound equal to me. And so I actually came to a, a point where I basically made a bargain with God. And I said to him, if we make it to the social kingdom, I do not want anything to do with polygamy. I don't want to, I don't want to be involved in it. I don't want to have to deal with it. And so I am willing to let my husband be in the social kingdom and he can have whatever wives you feel he needs. And I will be in a lesser kingdom. I don't want to hold him back. I will let him go and let him do that if that's what you require. So that was our that was my deal. Of course, he didn't answer because he probably would have just laughed at me. But that was the deal I made. So then at that same exact time, I'm a member of the Daughters Utah Pioneers. And I'm going to monthly meetings and they're talking about all these faithful men in the LDS church. And every single story had the same theme. The man would leave a wife to go on a mission. He'd leave her with several children. She'd hold down the farm. She'd be in near poverty, near starvation. He'd be gone for two or three years. He'd come home with his 16, 17-year-old mistress sitting on the wagon seat next to him from a foreign country, couldn't speak a lick of English, and he'd introduce her as, this is my polygamous wife. And I just I always became that woman who was pretty upset about polygamy. And I'd just say to the women, do you, do you really see how what this did to women and how this hurt them? And 
that always say, oh, you'll understand in the social kingdom. And I say, I don't think I will. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me. So then if that also, in addition to that, our kids were coming home from work and from school, having friend after friend, coworker after coworker leaving the church because they were finding out Joseph was a pedophile and a sexual predator. And so I started questioning. It was about 2010. I started really questioning Joseph Smith. My husband was bishop. I was in the Relief Society presidency. I, I knew that Joseph had made, I knew of some public denials he'd made, but I always bought the excuse the church gave that he was lying for the Lord. And so I kind of made up my mind that he was a fallen prophet. And so I felt like a real fraud. I mean, my husband's bishop, our stake president had the Relief Society presidency sit in front of all the women during Relief Society and stare out at them during the lesson. And I started feeling like a real fraud. And I started thinking if those women knew what I believe, you know, that would just really hurt them and that would really confuse them. And so I decided I had to find out the truth. And so one day I'm sitting in Relief Society and the lesson's on the first vision. And I had the thought that I needed to get up. Our Relief Society was first. Sacrament was last. So I had the thought, you need to get up and bear your testimony about sacrament meeting. And so um, I get up there, I'm bearing my testimony about the first vision, and I realized really quickly that I was bearing testimony to myself. And so as I was walking down off the stand, there was just some confusion of mind and heart. You know, did you know I knew. Joseph had had that experience. I love, 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 love the Book of Mormon. Absolutely love it. Loved it. It has just been kind of my go-to manual to get through life. Um, and so I just, I realized I needed to figure it out. Like I needed, I needed to find out once and for all the truth about Joseph Smith. Was he an honest man? Who did he practice polygamy? Did he, was he a liar? Was he a fallen prophet? Like, who was he? I needed to figure it out. And so I started researching it. And more and more, the evidence just became overwhelming. That, you know, like the third option, like I'd never thought about before, that I'd never, ever considered that he was telling the truth and he never practiced polygamy like that had never crossed my mind and so I believe the first blog post that really opened my mind to that was Rock Waterman's blog post why I'm abandoning polygamy and then his blog post led me to reading Richard and Pamela Price's um, multi-volume series Joseph Smith fought polygamy it was like mind-blowing to me and it just opened me up to a new idea um, and then just a thought came to me one day, can you believe that Joseph meant what he said? Like I've had some experiences in my life where I've been falsely accused of things. And I would just think to myself, I, why can't people just believe me? And so it was kind of like God saying to me, well, can you extend that same courtesy to Joseph? Can you believe he meant what he said? And so once I 
started a deeper dive into history with that idea. Like I still wanted to know the truth. I was still open to finding things that proved he was a polygamist. Um, so I really went into it with um, which way is it going to go? Like I wasn't really sure. And once I came to the realization that he never practiced polygamy, then I, of course, I just wanted to share that with the world. I wanted all of the people that I cared and loved about who had left the church and, and left God because they thought Joseph was a, a polygamist and a predator and a sexual deviant and a hypocrite. I wanted those people to have a reason to come back. I wanted women to stop worrying about polygamy someday in their future, that they could fully open their hearts and fully trust becoming one with their husband because no other woman would ever get in the way of that. Um, I wanted to kind of, um, I kind of wrote this book also as a way to ask for forgiveness from Joseph himself for ever denying him and ever thinking that he was a liar and hypocrite. And so that is kind of what compelled me to write it. That is fantastic. So it sounds like you've been in a lot of different thought processes throughout your life. You were talking about, I believe polygamy is a thing. I still don't like it to, you know what, God, I'm willing to accept it. If that's what it takes to Joseph being perhaps a totally misled, fallen, lying pervert, right? Yeah. even yeah. full swing back, which is like, look, I think Joseph was a virtuous man, perhaps based on this evidence that I'm finding in, uh, and maybe he deserves a second chance and a, and a fair trial, so to speak. Right. So that's like four different mindsets that you've had yourself. And I know that when I, when I started Hemlock Knots, I was leaning towards the idea of I'm going to find the evidence and fillet this guy. I'm, I'm going to actually put it out there so to, to put this question to rest. Yeah. I fully expected to find volumes and volumes of really good, reliable stuff, but, uh, so talk about, you know, how much did you know going into writing the book about this topic? Mm-hmm. How much you knew when you finished it and hit that publish button? What did you learn in the writing of it? So I think if you can, if you can quantify your thoughts into percentages <laughs> or your beliefs into percentages, which isn't really possible. I would, have, I would have said by the time, I mean, I've been studying quite a bit um, before I decided to write it. And so I would say, though, that I was like at about a 97% belief that he was innocent of polygamy. Um, There still was a little bit of room, a little bit of doubt that that as I, because I decided, I really decided for the premise of this book, you know, the RLDS sources are like, yeah, that are so much, you know, he never did any sealings, period. And then the LDS sources are all, yes, he did, and he was sealed to all these women. And so I kind of tried to broach it with, could both sides be true? And if so, how would that work? Could there be truth in both? And so, um, yeah, I had I had gone through all of the prices books. I had gone to all of their original sources, and then I'd found more amount. I'd read through every volume of the Times and Seasons. I had read through. I bought um, my husband bought for me the Words of Joseph Smith by E. Hatton Cook. Um, I'd read that from cover to cover. Um, just 
everything I could get my hands on. So I was about 97% sure, but I had that little bit of like, what if as I'm really researching and really things coming to me, what if I do find something? And I was like, well, I'm willing to go there because I really, really want to know the truth. Right. And so, um, honestly, there's, but by the time I hit, so I the, the public, the writing and publication process was pretty fast for, for, well, it wasn't fast. Um, I started it the day we buried my dad. I knew that day I was going to write a book and I hit publish nine months to the day, exactly 40 weeks, 40 weeks to the exact day. Nine months to write this thick. How many pages in this thing? Oh, I don't know, like 400. (laughs) As some of my friends say, 399 too many. That's impressive. Nine months. Yeah. And luckily I was only working part-time at the time, like at my job. And so I would come home and work 20 to 40 hours a week, um, riding at holidays, weekends, everything. Like it just, it was what I was doing and I wanted to get it out there and I wanted to hopefully help someone. So by the, so I pretty much, I mean, I pretty much, like I said, I was about 97% sure. By the time um, I was about halfway through it, I had a day when I was just a really, really described. I mean, I'd never, I wasn't a writer. I just, this harebrained idea, like write a book and let other people know all the stuff you found and, and, you know, bless other people's lives if possible. So my husband was, you know, he's very, very um, supportive, but very protective also. And um, so he would... He would say things like, you know, there's dozens and dozens and dozens of books on Joseph Smith. Like, why? Why is anybody going to read yours? And he wasn't being negative. He was just trying to be like realistic and like not didn't want me to uh, like maybe spend my time on something that didn't need to be done or um, be hurt if no one read it (laughs) kind of a thing. And so I remember clearly there was a day about halfway into it. I was sitting, it was a Sunday morning. He's out reading. He was my first, he, he always proofreads everything for me first run and helps me with adding scriptures that fit in places or different stuff like that. And so he was out, and I didn't know this. He was out reading and I didn't know he was doing that. I was in my bedroom praying and I was just kind of like, kind of like crying to God and just being like, I, this is way, this is way bigger than I can do. Like, I don't know how to do this. I don't know what I'm doing. I've never done this before. Like, this is really overwhelming. Like there's so many people in this world better at this. Can you ask somebody else to do this? If you need this done, kind of an idea, you know? And so my husband doesn't know that's what I'm doing. He doesn't know I'm crying to God and praying. He walks into our bedroom He's got tears in his eyes, which he never cries. And he looks at me and he said, the world needs this book. And then he tells me that he had not been fully convinced either of Joseph's innocence until reading the book. And it's just astounding the amount of evidence out there that proves Joseph's innocence. And most of it from Joseph himself. Like I tried really hard. I wanted this to be Joseph's voice. I wanted Joseph to defend himself. And so most of it is Joseph's own words. So it's pretty, 
pretty compelling, but I'd say by the time I got done, um, I was a hundred percent convinced I have not yet still found anything that was current to Joseph's lifetime that says he did polygamy. Um, but since writing it, I have found even more like it's yeah. been now a couple of years and I just keep finding more and more in more and more. I would say, um, other people, um, his brother, William Smith, other people who, um, had testified his sisters, um, other sources that talk about that he was innocent. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, for you, let me ask a hard question for you, because I think every author, once they hit that publish button and you're out there, they have to ask themselves this question honestly, which is, look, if tomorrow some bombshell evidence landed in your lap, Joseph Smith's own handwriting, verified journals where he states that blah, 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 he did do it. Right. Right. What would you do? What would you do if tomorrow you did stumble across that that evidence you've been looking for all these years? To the contrary. Um. You know, I can honestly say that I completely understand why people leave the church and why they leave God. When you have been taught something your entire life and you find out um, that it's been a lie or there's something to the contrary, it is incredibly difficult to stay founded in something. Right. I just, and so I think that would be really hard. And my first question would be, is it a Mark Hoffman forgery? <laughs> that would be my first question if I found something. Uh-huh. Um, because they're still out there. They're still out there. But um, it is, I mean, it, it is something that I, uh, my heart really, really goes out to. I mean, I, I was really close to having my whole foundation taken out. And so um, all I had, like I said, all I had left was my relationship with the Savior. And so I think if you have that, you can make it. You can you can weather those storms. But I think truth is important. But I think if I did find something like that, I think I would still research to understand because we've conflated a lot of things. Like one of the things we've conflated, we have, we've changed words. We've changed definitions. We've conflated things. And one of those is we've conflated sealings into marriage, into sexual relations. If you're sealed to someone, that means you're married to them. That means you can have sexual relations with them and are having relations with them. And I don't believe that that is how it was. I think that is something we have. I do not think, I think everyone would do a really good thing if everyone who is currently active LDS, inactive LDS, foundational LDS, if they really ask themselves, what is it that I know that Joseph Smith taught? Because I think you'd be really shocked to find out that the religion packaged in our student manuals today 
If you went back to the original source, go back to what Joseph Smith taught, you are going to come to absolutely be amazed at the man he was. What do you think from your studying his life? What do you think his emphasis was? What was he trying to teach? Yes, he was trying to tear down some false teachings, obviously. Um, right. That, right. What, what do you think he was proactively trying to get into the heads of that generation back then as far as teachings? Well, I mean, we have to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ started with a family in the Garden of Eden. It started with Adam and Eve. And um, when Cain chose to follow Satan... And the family broke apart. And ever since then, we've had nothing but division and chaos that have entered into the world. And so every restoration is trying to get back to restoring the original gospel of Adam, getting back to that family of God. And so I think that is what Joseph was doing. And part of that, and maybe the most important aspect of that is teaching us the correct characteristics, attributes, and perfections of God so that we can have complete trust and faith in the being that we worship. And so all restorations, all of them begin with an ascension experience, a theophany experience, Isaiah is a theophany experience. Joseph Smith in the first vision. They all begin that way. And so I really think this is a really, really key aspect that you need, that anyone needs to understand to help them understand what is a true prophet and why do we need them. And we need them because they teach us about God. They teach us his correct attributes and perfections and characteristics, but they also spend their entire ministry teaching us to repent and ascend to God ourselves. So anyone, man, woman, child, anyone that comes to you and says they can speak to God on your behalf, you have to really ask if they really know God. Because God wants a personal relationship with every single one of us. And so Joseph's main message from the very beginning was to rise up and get it for ourselves. He was basically trying to put himself out of a job. He was trying to teach the people how to become prophets themselves. How to become sons and daughters of God by reconnecting and coming back into God's family. And so if you can read every, the Book of Mormon is an Ascension theology text. It is story after story after story of men who did it. It starts with Lehi being in a time of apostasy in Jerusalem. He hears Jeremiah preaching repentance he repents, he goes and prays and repents, and it's not the same day. You know, it could have been weeks, months, years of repentance and calling on God's name until God comes to him. 
But that's how Lehi starts. And, and the whole Book of Mormon is Ascension Theology. So if you can go back and study Joseph's teachings with that idea in mind, your mind will just open up to, to a relationship with God that you need to have, that you can. He cares about you. He cares about me. He cares about every single one of us. And we're all here trying to figure that out, trying to figure out how to give back to him, trying to figure out, you know, just what's truth and error. So that's what Joseph is trying to help us do. That's good stuff. And we do have glimpses of him even rebuking some of the members of the church, particularly in a Relief Society meeting where he's saying you've, Mm -hmm. you've relied on me too much. You know, you need to, you need to develop that relationship yourself. So, yeah, that's good stuff, and, and thank you for sharing all that. Um, let me ask you, have, have any of these beliefs of yours, or even the book you published, have they gotten you in any trouble with neighbors, friends, board members, you name it? What, what's, what are some of the worst reactions you've had from, from this the project? worst reactions? Um... <laughs> I knew I was going to ask. Well, yeah, that's fine, um, and that's good. It's good to know that there's good, bad, and ugly, right? Um First of all, I I had real reservations writing this. And the, the reservations I had is I take very seriously the Lord's charge to us not to trifle with the souls of men. Every soul is important to him. And so I was really, really concerned that if I wrote this book, that it would maybe cause people's um, faith in whatever to crumble. And I was really concerned about damaging people, damaging their souls. And so I wanted to, and that's why the book ends with hope. Like it kind of does. It kind of like, okay, Joseph didn't do it. But but inherently, if Joseph didn't do it, then that means somebody's lied about him. And you got to deal with that. And so that can really damage people. And so I ended it with that this is this is all about the Savior. Joseph's whole mission was about the Savior. It wasn't about him. It was about the Lord. And so you can have a relationship with the Lord. So that being said, my neighbors, I don't think any of my neighbors know that I've written a book. Um, my family is not uh, happy about it. I don't think I have one sibling who I gave all of them a copy for Christmas. <laughs> I don't think one of them's even read it. Um, they, they're, they're, they're not, they're not happy about it. Um, I've had, so I've had some negative criticism and that's fine. There's some stuff that I actually agree with, with some of those critiques. Um, one of them was that I, one of the critiques is that I, um, that I was, that I had in the beginning of the book, I talk about how the, the forward, I talk about how I was a huge apologetic for the church. And when I say that, I don't mean the gospel. I want to separate those two. There is a difference, whether we want to admit it or not, there is a difference between the gospel of Jesus Christ and institutions, whatever that institution is called. And so, um, I was an apologetic for the LDS church. 
And so I talk about in the beginning of the forward that the only way I felt like I could open my heart and my mind to learning a new truth about Joseph Smith was to overcome my apologetic ways. And so I had to stop being an apologist for the history that the LDS church um, puts forth. And so I have had people that are critical about that, that they don't, they don't like. And, and I, and I agree with that. I had to overcome my apologetic ways. So I agree with that criticism. Um, another criticism I've had is that I'm a conspiracy theorist because if it's true that Joseph Smith was innocent and we have all this history saying he did it, then somebody conspired together to make a history that was different. So I actually don't consider myself a conspiracy theorist. I actually kind of feel I'm pretty um, realistic, theoretical person. Um, but you know, they exist. I mean, like you're who, who here listening had their kid come to him this week and say, Hey, dad said I can go to a sleepover at Johnny's house. And as a mom, you're like, okay. And then you find out after he's gone, the dad said, no, like, you know, that, I mean, that's a basic conspiracy, right? A kid's conspiring to get what he wants. And so he makes up a story to get it. Or they say like, ah, conspiracies. How can anyone believe in that? And then they go back to turning pages in the book of Mormon, right? With their, with their reading glasses on. Right. I mean, the history of this world started with a conspiracy. Satan came to Cain and said, if you conspire with me and make an oath with me, I will give you power. So the Book of Mormon calls those secret combinations. So, you know, when you want to label it, whatever you want to label it, I, the criticism leveled at me of being a conspiracy theorist is not, is not one I, I will fully accept because they're saying it in a way of you're really unintelligent you're don't know what you're talking about you're just pulling out wild hairs and so i think if you find truth then how can you be a theorist so maybe i believe in conspiracies but yeah. mine happen to be i happen to believe this one's true so that's my criticism can we call right? you you're a conspiracy factist there you go. That there you go. That like that new term. Awesome. Um, another criticism I've had is that I had a guy who a uh, really good friend of ours, just wonderful man who loved the book so much. He gave it to some uh, ward members, and one of the ward members wrote a very very multi-page lengthy criticism of lots of aspects of it, and so. Um, he let me have that letter. Um, and in one of those criticisms was that he said, I called his grandfather and my grandfather's all adulterers. So I actually don't accuse anyone of being an adulterer. Um, but the scriptures do. I mean, God does. And I felt like it was only fair to warn people because there are still people even today there is someone somewhere in this world who's LDS who wants to get back to the true foundation of Joseph Smith. And they think that means they need to become a polygamist. 
And so they're going to end up committing adultery. I mean, that's what God calls it. Anybody who's having sexual relations outside of their monogamous union is an adulterer. Now they can repent. And I talk about that in the book. Like if you're currently in a polygamous situation, you know, keep your family together. Don't break up your family, but teach your children not to do it. Teach your children the truth. I actually think that um, those that there are a lot of groups out there that are trying to help fundamentalists and other women come out of polygamy. I think if they could open their minds to the narrative that Joseph never did it, they would be a lot more successful in helping those women because a, a lot of people, a lot of very, very good people, faithful people are practicing polygamy because they think that is the religion. They think that is the gospel. God is extremely gracious, extremely merciful. When we repent, he forgives immediately, immediately. So uh, that criticism, I, I can understand why that criticism was leveled at me, but I would just say that I had to include that in the book as a warning to people to, if you, you know, you didn't know, any different? Now you do. Now you know better. Repent and go do better. And then the last criticism I'd like to discuss is that I uh, had a pretty scathing review on Amazon where they basically said that my sources are bogus, that I did sloppy research, um, that I'm, you know, just not a good historian. And I'm like, well, first of all, I'm not a scholar. I'm just a middle-aged housewife. <laughs> who sat down at her computer and if I can do it and if I can find all this truth, then the scholars certainly should be able to. Um, and so I don't, I actually don't agree with that criticism. I know the length and, and um, of time that I put into writing this book. I know the attention I gave it. I know my heart was pure. I know my intentions were pure. Um, I actually, this is kind of a fun, fun story. I believe so much in this history of Joseph Smith that I contacted, uh, I think his name's Elder LeGrand Curtis or Curtis LeGrand Curtis. I think he's the 70 who's the church historian. I contacted him and asked him if I could bring my book to him. And cause I'm like, well, maybe these scholars don't know all this evidence. Like maybe if our LDS scholars got their hands on the truth um, that Joseph was doing during his life, they would change the, the narrative. They would change the history. And so I contacted him and asked him if I could come meet with him, talk with him about my book. And I received a reply that he is busy for the unforeseeable future and unable to meet with me. So he um, passed my information along to a female historian who has a PhD in women's studies because they figured I was just having a faith crisis dealing with polygamy. Right. <laughs> then COVID hit and she couldn't meet with me. So, but I, I tried. I thought, you know, maybe the church just, I mean, if I, if, seriously, if, a, if someone like me can find all this out just sitting at her keyboard, I mean, certainly uh, the scholars can. Right. Yeah. So. And, and that's the whole thing is, is people come to me and say, well, how do you know all this stuff? It's like this stuff is readily available for anybody yeah. who wants it. Right. If, yeah. if you 
you know, a part-time employee and, you know, busy mother can, can put this stuff together and a college or you know, a high school dropout like me can find this stuff and string it together. It's anybody can do it. Right. Yes. And it's yes. stuff is readily available to all the historians who have kind of turned, sometimes turned a blind eye to it, sometimes, you know, devalued it, sometimes said, well, the mountain of evidence is so much bigger that says that he did do it. But if you were to put that same amount of evidence on the quality scales of, okay, which, which side has the most qu- highest quality of evidence? Correct. I think that's a real question that most people are, are not, they're not comp- comprehending. They're not processing the idea that there's such thing as a quality of evidence, not just quantity, but we have to look at, you know, how good is the actual evidence on both sides? Right. And so. Absolutely. And, you know, we got to give them a break. I mean, they grew up in the same church I did. I mean, I used to believe Joseph did it, you know, and so 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 when you have the goggles on of Joseph's polygamist, then everything you read is with that. And you can twist and turn everything into that. Like you can you can do the whole he was lying for the Lord. You know, polygamy was illegal. And so he was keeping a secret so that they didn't get in trouble, blah, 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 right? Um, but they, they grew up with the same. So I have a lot of charity and compassion, but I'm like, but you know, the evidence is there. And so just just consider it. Just yeah. just take off those goggles and maybe put on goggles that I want to understand and have some truth goggles and then see what happens. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to have you on the show to, to get your story out there more because it is – it's, it's a neat story to have someone who's not classically trained with a PhD from BYU and ancient studies or, you know, church history or whatever. You don't need that stuff to figure out the answers to, to what really happened. As far as narrowing it down to probabilities, anybody can do that. Now, there's certain things I think that we can't answer. There's just not sources for that, you know, shelf. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the last part of this interview, though, we, we do want to get a chance to... Okay audience to to throw in some questions and we're gonna we're just gonna fire off questions and give us a quick reply your you know your best reply Mm -hmm. and we'll try to get as many of these out and answered as possible but i want to remind the audience that you know whitney has generously donated 20 of these copies of her book that we're going to be giving away to people who participate in the question and answer segment coming up so um right there in youtube or on the facebook channel if that's what you're watching this or the facebook group Hit us with your questions, and we'll do our best to get to some of the best questions for Whitney um, in the next, what, 35, 40 minutes? We've got a hard stop right at 7.30, so we'll we'll crank through these really quick. Whitney, are you ready? Uh, yeah, let's do it. Uh, first one we have is um, from Linda Hopkins. She asks, in your research, are you able to pinpoint one particular main source for the origin of LDS polygamy? I have heard of the Cochranites and John C. Bennett as possibilities. Are those two sources mutually exclusive or did Bennett possibly see an opportunity to take advantage of women in a community that already had spiritual wifery issues already going on? That's an excellent question. Excellent question. Um, one of the things we have to understand um, is that polygamy is not new. <laughs> um, Adams, I think it was the sixth or seventh generation from Adam named Lamech. He took two wives, did wickedly. He's the one who... Um, became master Mahan. Um, he taught his descendants to do wickedly, which is to, you know, enter into polygamy. So come fast forward from Adam's day to the 500 years ago, the Christian Reformation. And there were a lot of Christian churches that, you know, Martin Luther didn't, but there were other Christian groups 
that entered into polygamy and became polygamous during Joseph's lifetime. Um, and before he even like pretty much contemporary with him, we've got the Cochranites in the Eastern United States, upper Eastern United States and a group called, um, well, they didn't really have a name, but their leader was John Humphrey Noyes. And he formed communities. One of the best known is Oneida. If you have Oneida silverware, that comes from his community that he founded in the early 1800s. Um, he had a system of marriage he called complex marriage. And it was basically just sexual deviancies that were practiced within his um, religion. So the Copernites aren't exclusive. Um, John Bennett's not exclusive. Um, there's actually articles out there by religious scholars. Um, a lot of people, because we're Mormon and because of the people who, if we say, hey, I'm a member of the LDS church, like, oh, are you guys polygamists? Um, they probably were the, became the best known group, but actually religious reform became associated with polygamy or polygamy became associated with religious reform to the point that Joseph Smith stated towards the end of his life that he had only, you know, barely um, started the church and he was accused of having seven wives. Like it, there were other religions being formed, other um, religious reform going on, a lot of them entered, entered into polygamy or sexually deviant practices. So it was a known thing. Um, John C. Bennett um, had a wife and children, had had several affairs on his wife, um, was not a good husband when he left her and the children to come to Nauvoo, came to Nauvoo and um, just kept doing his sexual practices and discretions in Nauvoo. And so the term spiritual wifery is what the early saints called polygamy. Um, it wasn't just a John C. Bennett term. It was a term the Cochranites did use it, but so did Brigham Young and so did um, Bennett. And there, the basically it meant that because the laws of the land would only allow you to have one legal wife, if you took a second wife and she's not a legal wife because you can't have a legal wife, then, um, then she's spiritual. She's a wife in spirit. And so that term really was in a lot of places. Um, so, yeah. Well, thanks. Mm -hmm. Appreciate your insight there. Rebecca Campbell, at the very beginning of this, we're going we're gonna to go back in time for hers. She says, how do you respond to the church essays? Many members don't even know about them, but they are in direct opposition to what you are saying. P.S. I hold the same view as the author so far. The church essays, they have done a lot of damage to a lot of people. I actually know now, know more people who've left the church because of reading the church essays. And, and it, so it's sad. Um, it's because they, they either, they, they, if I'm going to extend charity and grace to them, I'm going to say that they're reading all of the history with goggles on. Uh, um, they, they've done an interesting thing with the church essays. They actually hire other people to write them. And sometimes you can't find out who wrote them. They might be written anonymously. 
Um, so the church essays are written by a lot of times by members like me who have a whole lot more credentials listed behind their name. And so then are supposedly going to be an expert on a subject. And so I wish that people knew that. I wish that people knew that those church essays are not written by the brethren. They're not even written by the main church historians. And um, I think that when you read those, one of the things you need to see, uh, one of the sentences that is used quite often is they'll be talking about history. And then they'll say, this is what we do today. And they'll say, but we don't do what they did then. Now we do this. But no revelation to back up why it's been changed and no sources or anything else. So okay, good. Good answer. Yeah. It's a mystery who's who's exactly involved in some of those. Uh, mm-hmm. We're yeah. going to move to a, a different like a live segment now. We've got Jessica Long. She's actually um, she helps us out with the Hemlock Knots Facebook group. So we're going to bring her on. And she's going to ask one of her questions. Okay. Hello, Jessica. Hi, how are you? Good. Hey, uh, some of my questions in your book, you talked about uh, James Whitehead testifying that there was a revelation about sealings, and that was potentially changed into the revelation about polygamy. Um, so if Joseph did receive the revelation about the sealings a year before he died, uh, why wasn't it made public or published or voted on by the church? Okay, that's an excellent question. So it actually was public four days later. So the revelation was written or recorded on July 12, 1843. It doesn't mean that's when it was received. It is actually possible he received it as early as May, um, but that it wasn't actually written down until July 12th. Four days later, and he could have been doing it in preparation for the talk that he gave four days later. So four days later, he gave a talk um, to the saints. It's in the book by Ehan Cook. Um, and in that, he basically taught them. Um, he says, I'll read it right here for you. He says, no man can obtain an eternal blessing unless the contract or covenant be made in view of eternity. All contracts in view of this life only terminate with this life. Those who keep no eternal law in this life or make no eternal contract are single and alone in the eternal world and are only, um, I can find the next page road to somewhere well anyway they're only they may remain as angels in heaven so the problem is because we have dnc 132 and it's all about polygamy we think joseph didn't publicly teach it but if we go back to in june of 1844 joseph and hiram testified before the navu city council so hiram has so not only had joseph publicly taught it in on july 16th Hiram had read the revelation in August to the Nauvoo High Council. He'd explained to them what it meant, explained the same things about being married or sealed or, or a contract being done in view of eternity to last into eternity. And then that's, that was it. So flash forward to June of 1844, we've got the Nauvoo Expositor that takes what they had heard that that revelation was about, because somehow in between that time, it disappears. Like there is no original record anymore of that revelation. So somehow in that time period, it had got, it had become morphed into being about polygamy. 
And so the novel expositor writes this big scandalous article, you know, claiming Joseph's a polygamist, claiming that the women in Nauvoo are prostitutes, on and on. In the city council then has a city council meeting to decide what to do. And so they actually had laws on their charter that they could get rid of something that would incite a riot or that would be um, a nuisance, a public nuisance. They were very concerned that the Nauvoo Expositor was going to bring mobs against them again. And so basically they would incite riots. So they actually consulted all these famous law books and were well within the right to destroy the Nauvoo Expositor. Well, in that council meeting, both Joseph and Hiram testify about that revelation. And Joseph says, He was pondering on the scripture that says, neither are they married nor given in marriage in the resurrection. And in answer, this is what he says, in answer to that, I received that all contracts must be made in view of eternity. If they're made in life, they'll end in life. And he says, that was the extent of the revelation. Hiram gets up, he testifies of the same thing. And he says, furthermore, it had nothing to do with polygamy. It had to do with, ancient times and not modern times and is about basically eternal marriage, but not about polygamy. So that was publicly taught, but just not the way that it's turned into in 132. Awesome. Thank you, Whitney. So this is a related one. So Kimberly's mm-hmm. actually asking, what do you believe are the true origins of DNC 132? And then right after that, we'll bring Jacob Isbell on live like Jessica was. Okay. So DSD 132. So I would say of all of the quote unquote compelling evidence that Joseph was a polygamist, I would say DNC 132 at the outset would be your strongest argument. Now, when you get into looking into it, that's when it starts kind of falling apart. DNC 132 um, was not made public until 1852. It was made public in a general conference of the LDS Church where they announced, officially announced that they were doing polygamy. A little fun fact, about 6,000 saints left the church and left Utah after that announcement. They did not know the polygamy was going on. They left. So Brigham Young says in that meeting, hey, I had this revelation um, and it's been locked away. I've had it locked away in a drawer. He does not add it to the Doctrine and Covenants until 1876. And at that time, he removes what's called the law or statement of marriage that Joseph had Oliver Cowdery write in 1835 that stated polygamy was a crime, that the LDS Church believes in monogamy and having one wife, one husband, one husband, wife. So Brigham removes it, it, removes it in 1876 and puts in DNC 132. Um, when you get looking at the history of DNC 132, there is a, so supposedly Joseph writes it down, or Clayton, he has William Clayton write it down. He dictates to him. Clayton writes it down. He allows Clayton to take, Clayton's never been ascribed for him before in a revelation, allows him to take the revelation, show it to a friend whose name is Joseph Kingston. Joseph Kingston's a 30 something year old clerk. Um, at a grocery store. He copies it. He testifies years later that he had about 45 minutes to copy it. 
and you can, that's what we have today. So DNC 132 comes from the copy of the copy. If you look at it in the, in the church, uh, I think it's in the history library or somewhere down in Salt Lake, they have a, a facsimile of it up. There's not one mistake. I, I challenge every single one of you to go get a document that's that long to go get it. Get, open your scriptures, set a timer for 45 minutes and write it without any mistakes, anything you have to erase. You know, it was ink back then. So that's pretty amazing. The yeah, good luck with that. Kingston, but Kingston is Kingston's a pretty kind of shady character a little bit. He's uh, very, very involved. He's the one who any compelling revelations from Joseph Smith on polygamy, anything to do with polygamy, Kingston's always the one that brought him forth. So that's kind of what I think of. When, I think 132 is a doctor document. If I'm going to be completely honest, I think that it was Emma Smith said it was written for the new order of things for Brigham Young that gotcha. she had never before seen it. And it was a bunch of garbage. <laughs> awesome. um, Thanks. So we're going to bring on another live guest, Jacob Isbell. Jacob, 20 seconds. Hit us with one question. So, it's good to hear you through small journey learning this. To what do you, do you recognize a connection between ignorance of what you've actually published and people's opposition to what they say you've published? Are they informed when they oppose you or are they really um, I would say that they want so badly to remain uh, apologetic for the history of the LDS church that that's what forms their criticism. Yeah, they just can't open their minds to a new narrative, new history. Very good. Awesome. This one's from Jeff Bartholomew. What is the evidence that the original DNC 101 was commissioned by Joseph to Oliver writing it? instead of Oliver writing it himself? That's a great question. Um, I don't know if I'd ever really know for sure if Oliver just went off on his own and wrote it. But it doesn't really matter because you have to understand, Joseph Smith actually um, set apart Oliver and his group of people as kind of their own little scripture committee. So whether Oliver wrote it himself or not, Joseph sanctioned it. Um, it was voted on by the people in 1835. It was voted unanimously to be included in the Doctrine and Covenants. And then Joseph was, um, it was included again in the next edition. And then just before Joseph died, he was preparing the 1844 edition and Joseph himself in- chose to include it. So whether Joseph actually asked Oliver to write it or Oliver just wrote it on his own, um, yeah, to me, is kind of irrelevant because Joseph still vouched for it and the people voted for it unanimously. Joseph included it in several articles in the Times and Seasons. He would quote from it. So, you know, whether Oliver wrote it and Joseph just really loved it and agreed with it, to me, it doesn't really matter because Joseph still accepted it and vouched for it in the end. Okay, awesome. Next question is from Chad Burnham. If Joseph and Hiram were innocent and Brigham and the Twelve were guilty, then how do you reconcile the fact that so many who were very much against Brigham either still turned to polygamy themselves, such as William Smith, James Strang, and Lyman White, or simply accused Joseph of originating the practice? like former First Presidency members Sidney Rigdon and William Law. Were all of these individuals simply gullible, 
or believing the rumor mill? Okay, so according to William Smith, so first of all, one of the things I'd like to say about Sidney Rigdon and William Smith both is that everything that I knew about them until a few years ago came from LDS church history. Um, when I go back and research them on my own, they're pretty amazing men and a lot better people than what maybe our history um, gives them credit for. So William Smith, brother, youngest brother, last surviving, I mean, last surviving brother of Joseph, um, after Joseph and Hiram were killed and then Samuel died shortly after William Smith's the last surviving brother. He actually wrote a letter to Joseph Smith, the third Joseph's son, um, years later. And he said, you know, the evidence that Brigham and his associates produced was so compelling that I almost believed it. So William Smith actually almost enters into polygamy himself. Um, his wife wouldn't do it. His wife left him. That's the only thing that saved him from doing it. But he lost his wife and his kids over it. It was his second marriage. His first wife passed away. Um, these other men, like, I guess one of my questions that I've kind of asked myself is, why do we think a man will only enter into polygamy if God or a prophet commands him? There are men and women all over the world today committing adultery as we speak. None of them needed to be commanded by God or have a prophet to tell them to do it. The problem comes is when you have someone claiming God told them to do it and claiming God told you you have to do it, that then it becomes um, easy to justify entering into it and also can become very confusing if you want to be a faithful follower of the Lord, and you are persuaded that the Lord commanded it. So I think those men either believe the rumor mill or they themselves saw a great way to convince women to cohabitate with them. Gotcha. Well, the result was the same either way, right? Mm -hmm. So next question's on screen there. That's from uh, Mr. Theist. Okay. Very small tech. Theist. Mr. Theist says, what have you learned about Levi Hancock and was he the one trying to marry Fanny Alger? So I haven't done a lot of research into Levi. I believe, I know that you guys on Hemlock Knots, you did a deep dive into Fanny Alger. So I would even just point you back to what you guys have already done on the Fanny Alger issue. But um, so they call it the affair or the incident in the barn. Um, back then, the word affair didn't mean what it does to us today. Uh, affair could literally just be that you got in a fight with somebody and it was a, an affair. The, the event, it was a word they used for an event or something that happened. So I believe Levi Hancock, I think, is her uncle or some family member. And it, and I don't even think he was the one, correct me if I'm wrong, Mark, but isn't it Levi's son that writes, kind of finishes the autobiography for his dad and his son's the one that writes that his dad performed the ceiling ordinance? That's right. So Levi wrote his autobiography, quote unquote, but Mosiah Hancock in 1896, right. 14 years after Levi dies, goes in and gives it the old 
review and, you know, update and added a bunch of stuff, including all of the detail we have about the sealing ceremony itself. Now, it's important to know that Mosiah Hancock was either a brand new, new newborn, you know, the year that that happened or else not even right. born yet. So it had to have been at least third hand. So, yeah. Right. So basically my belief with Fanny Alger is that no sealing took place. My belief was Fanny is that it was some other thing. Either she, she either came on to Joseph, you know, young teenage girl, and he's in his early thirties, or she, they, she didn't do her job right, or she got disciplined in some way because her and her parents leave town immediately. And then she tells her brother years later, you know, he says, what happened between you and Joseph? And she goes, that's, that's between me and Joseph. Well, if she had been sealed to him in some way or something else, I would think you would explain it, especially the brother asking her was a polygamist and was a member of the LDS church from Utah. Yeah. So that's kind of my, my thing with Fanny is I think that got way, that's been way blown out of proportion of what really happened. Yeah. Considering 20, 30 women in Utah bragging about that association with Joseph. I mean, it's weird that she would be like, you know, no comment. I don't want to talk about what happened. Right. Right. Very, you know, uh, embarrassed by it for sure. But to answer, you know, we did put together a timeline recently, uh, hemlockknots.com slash Fanny, and you'll see all of the known sources, all 19 sources in regards to Fanny Alger. You guys can go and check that out. Um, so next question we have is from Liberty Over Captivity. His question is, has your book had any impact on those who have left the church and stopped believing in God altogether because they have because they thought Joseph was a polygamist. You know, I, I have not heard from anyone that's in that situation. I do have one man that I met um, recently who uh, left about 20 years ago, I think. And he just bought my book. He said he's, he's, he's healed enough from the spiritual damage that that took on him, that he is ready to, to look at that and consider, but I haven't heard yet if he's finished it or how that's going. I really hope so. You know, even if they don't come back to believing in Joseph, if, if they could at least just come back to believing in God, it would be worth it. That's awesome. Okay. So we talked about a hard stop at seven thirty. Is that still a thing, Whitney? Or do you... Well, I don't have to be anywhere until eight. So okay. you tell so, me how long you want to go. So I, we do have probably 20 more questions. So should we do like a kind of a speed round? We'll throw them out faster and let you just kind of chew through if some of these. If I can answer them fast, I will. Okay. Yeah, we want, we want at least 20 people to, to get their free copy of the book. So yes, yes. we're going we're gonna to amp up the speed a little bit. So this okay. is from Mark Tensmeyer. He says, um, Joseph Smith III asked his mother directly if there was anything about his father and spiritual wives that she could recall. She gave a very clear no saying that Joseph had no other wives, spiritual or otherwise in any sense, quote unquote, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that would seem to me to contradict your narrative. How do you account for that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm actually doing more research into that. Um, You have to understand that. So maybe, maybe I saw a little bit of an LDS apologist at the time, but I, I didn't want to think that all of the women who claimed to have been sealed to Joseph were lying. I wanted to give them some benefit of the doubt. And so I was trying to figure out 
you know, what's a way that, that possibly they were telling the truth. But you have to understand, Emma said they weren't wise. I don't believe they were ever, ever sealed as wives. I believe they were sealed as children. If, if they were sealed to him at all, it was as children. He and Emma were an exalted couple. The way that God's kingdom works from Adam on down is it's an exalted couple or a husband and wife who have made that ascension. And then anyone that's righteous in those generations that is sealed to the fathers in heaven. So Malachi tells us, right? Turn your hearts, seal your hearts to the fathers in heaven, become their sons and daughters, their children. So I think that that could still, Emma could have still been telling the truth, but because they weren't wise, they were never wise. They may have been sealed as children and maybe they didn't, you know, if something happens really quick, you know, hey, come here, daughter, we're going to have this ceremony. And then she leaves and 50, 60 years later, she's supposed to remember what it was. And you've now been in a polygamous marriage for 30 years. And you're told this was the same ceremony Joseph did. You, know, you could get confused. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. Next one is from Joe Alexander. He says, could you have discovered the Joseph Smith quotes exonerating him 20 years ago? Question mark. What has changed? You, you could. You could. Um, because all of this stuff is in archives. Um, but I would have had to have spent countless months going through everything and reading stuff in the church history library. I would have had to go back to the RLDS um, or now the community of Christ um, church history library. The thing that's changed is technology and technology is amazing. And what's amazing to me is the number of people out there who are willing to take the time to scan and digitize letters, records, newspaper articles. Like it's astounding to me what I can just sit at home with an internet connection and find. And so these, all of these sources existed. They just are now digitized. And so they're easier to find from my home computer. Gotcha. Thank goodness for not having to go downtown and spend nine hours rummaging. Well, boxes. To try, and you wouldn't even know, like some of this stuff is literally somebody has a box of aunt so-and-so's, stuff in their basement and they scan it and they put it online. And so, you know, stuff like that wouldn't have known whose house to go to, to find it, you know? Right. Oh yeah. So Eliza R. Snow says that she was Joseph Smith's wife, um, even claimed that she was knocked up by Joseph Smith and carried a baby for a little bit later on in life. She says, I was not his carnal wife. Right. Or whatever. Mm-hmm, yeah. All of that itself out. But what do you think about this question from Tommy Bailey? She says, did Emma actually push Eliza R. Snow down the stairs, causing Snow to miscarry Joseph's baby. Okay, so Eliza R. Snow, for those who don't know, is is Lorenzo Snow's sister. Um, they they were early converts to the church. Eliza R. Snow actually was Emma's secretary in the early society. So there are a couple different accounts of Eliza. So there's a guy named Doctor Weil. He wrote an article in 1885. He spent five months in Salt Lake City interviewing saints, trying to figure out truth. He came to the conclusion after interviewing lots of people, and most of them wanted to go on anonymously. They didn't want 
um, leaders of the church to find out that they were sharing secrets. He basically came out and said that Eliza Snow, um, as a 30-something-year-old spinster in Nauvoo, became uh, um, involved with John C. Bennett and got pregnant by Bennett. And then after getting pregnant with Bennett, the um, Smiths, Emma and Joseph, took her into their house. And then shortly after that, her father took her away from Nauvoo. It is documented. Eliza just disappears. She disappears from her dad takes her out of Nauvoo when she shows back up a while later, no, not pregnant, no baby. So either the baby was adopted out, the baby died, she miscarried. Um, the story of being pushed down the stairs didn't come about until the 1860s, 1870s in Utah. And the church leaders actually started that story. They wanted to perpetuate because they were having a lot of issues with church members coming to them and saying there are no children from any of Joseph and Hiram's wives except for the ones that were their first wives. No children from polygamous wives. The early saints knew this. They could not understand. They were bothered by it because Brigham certainly had a lot of children. So they were trying, the early saints were trying to figure out why didn't Joseph produce offspring with his polygamous wives? So they started this story that Eliza R. Snow had been pushed down the stairs. So there would have been a baby, but Emma killed it because she was in a jealous rage. So there are some people who have gone to the homes um, that Joseph and Emma lived in to see if these could even ha have happened. And there's just no physical way where the quote unquote witnesses who Nobody saw the event firsthand. So all of the stories that have been perpetuated about it were from second, third, fourth hand people saying, I heard it from so-and-so, who heard it from so-and-so, who heard it from so-and-so. So going back to the homes, none of the homes they lived in had the layout of their stairs with the door that the people supposedly were standing in when they witnessed it. And none of the stairs are done in such a way that it could have happened. So that has been scholars all over now completely denounce that story. Um, and now recently, a story has just come out recently that, um, and there's pretty compelling um, historical documentation on this, that Eliza was actually um, gang raped in Missouri and it made her infertile. And so she never could ever have children. And if that's the case, then obviously she couldn't have been pregnant with Joseph's child and pushed down the stairs because she never was pregnant. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, Joseph Elder, we're going to move on to the next question. He, he says, Whitney, what's the best way you have found to share this message? So again, you got to be careful with people. Um, you know, people's souls are important and we don't want to damage people beyond repair. So one of the best ways I found is simply asking questions. You know, you're sitting with your brother at lunch and you say, what do you think about polygamy? What do you think about Joseph Smith being a polygamist? And if your brother says that doesn't bother me, I don't care about it. Then, then the conversation's done. If your brother says, you know, I think it's great and I can't wait till they bring it back, conversation's done. 
You know, if the, if your brother says, you know, it really bothers me and, and I don't know what to make of that. And it bothers me that, that Joseph Smith did that. Then, then the conversation's now open. So I think asking questions, you got to ask questions to find out where people are. And asking those questions can let you don't want to, you know, there's a great story. Like I said, I, I did marriage and family counseling. Great story to illustrate this. Um, little five-year-old Johnny comes home to mom one day and says, mom, where'd I come from? And mom says, shoot, it's time for the birds and bees already. I thought I had a few more years. She lays out the whole process of where did Johnny come from? <laughs> she gets done and Johnny said, oh, well, Billy down the street said he's from Arizona, right? So you just give people as much as they're willing and able to handle and all they want to know right now. Cool. Well said. Amy, John Jigen says, um, did Emma keep a journal? If so, do we have it or was it destroyed? That's an excellent question. I I would love, 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 love to find Emma's journal. Um, as far as I know, um, she didn't, or if she did, no one's found it. No one has it. I can't find it in any RLDS sources, Community Christ sources. Um, so, yeah, no, not that I know of. But if anybody works in the Granite Vault and knows it's in there, That'd be awesome if you digitized and got it out. That would be awesome to read. Okay, Trisha Woolley asks, were you able to find information from Joseph Smith about temples and temple covenants? What other information, if any, do you know of that the church teaches that didn't come from Joseph Smith? Well, that could be another like two hours every Sunday. (laughs) To answer that question, but really quickly, really quickly, I'll answer about temples. Yes, he talked about them a lot. Um, with the Kirtland Temple, the Lord appeared and accepted it. Um, the Lord promised the people that if they were faithful, they would see his face there. Right after that, everything fell apart and not in Kirtland. They got to far west. They were given a commandment to build a temple. Everything fell apart in far west. They get to Nauvoo, and they chose to build a temple. And Joseph took that to the Lord. It's um, section 124, I believe. And the Lord said, I will accept your offering to build this temple, but you have a short window to get it done. So from that point on, Joseph, there's a lot of conference talks that are printed in the Times and Seasons, a lot of articles in the Times and Seasons, where he's pleading with the people, get this temple done, like get Get at it. This time's ticking. Um, You know, if you want the fullness of the priesthood, so the saints didn't have the fullness. So that's one of the big teachings right there that you've got to understand. And so that comes from God. It's in Genesis, in Joseph's um, inspired translation of the Bible. Um, There's an excellent one that RLDS Church produces that has it the way it should be. And then also there's another group that has just released some called the Restoration Edition. And they've just released, they, they call it the Old Covenants, New Covenants, Book of Mormon, Teachings and Commandments. They've gone back to the original stuff that Joseph revealed. Like a lot of your Doctrine and Covenants has had things added to it. So they went back to the original revelation 
So they have a, a website, I think, called scriptures with an S dot info scriptures, plural dot info. You can read it for free online. Um, so in Genesis, which was Moses, but Joseph revealed Genesis now because he wanted Moses, the book of Moses to be in Genesis originally. He talks about that the higher priesthood, the fullness of the priesthood comes by God's own voice. So he taught things like that. He wanted the people, he said, get, you know, Joseph and Hiram were Holy Spirits of promise. They were the seals on the earth. He said, get this temple built so we can seal you, seal the people so we can reveal those things that God has. But more importantly, Hiram taught that they would take the sacrament in the temple and the sacrament, the spirit that is always to be with you with the sacrament is God's love for each other. So he taught that all of the issues you have with your friends, your neighbors, your ward members, your stake members, those would be done away with in a temple accepted by the Lord where they could perform the sacrament to the Lord so that he would fill them with his love for each other. That's cool. Okay. Next one is from Starfire Farm. Um, they ask, have you been able to access any of the original journals from Joseph Smith in the church's historical building that Emma had requested Brigham return to her? No, I haven't been able to. Well, that was easy. We're going to bring on the next one real quick. I would love to. I would love to read the originals. That would be good to hear more from Emma. Well, and I think she's meaning the journal, Joseph's journals that Emma asked for back that the church has kept. Yeah. Okay. Next one from Jeremy Taff. Are there any accounts or documents from the Cochranites about their practices and ordinances like the DNC, except for Cochranites? Not that I can find. Um, so the only sources that I've been able to find for the Cochranites is a woman named Olive um, Junkins. She wrote a book. Um, she was a member of the Cochranites and she wrote a book, huge long title. I wrote it down somewhere, but I can't find it now. But she wrote a book about the, oh, here it is. It's called The Dealings of a Few of the Church at York Who Call Themselves Christians with Samuel Junkins and his wife together with a short sketch of their own Christian experience. <laughs> that was her title. But she was a Cochranite. She talks about... Um, their form of spiritual wifery, they basically, the way she describes it, they believe that we're all to love each other, literally. So any man can have any woman and any woman, any man, because we all love each other. Because that God, that that's the love God gave people. Um, so basically it was free and open. So the only other sources are Samuel Harrison Smith's Mission Journal. Orson Hyatt's mission journal where they talk a lot about being among the Cochranites. So. Right. And you can read the, uh, all the Cochranite versions of their, or the excerpts from their journals about the Cochranites at, uh, hemlocknots.com slash Cochranites. That'll take you to their journals. All right. Next one's from Rebecca Campbell, Whitney. She says in your research, did you find much connection, much connecting Brigham Young to the Cochranites and how so? So I actually think it's um I think it's circumstantial evidence um so 
He does go up into that area. They're up in the main area, um, Boston, all um, the eastern seashore from Boston up to Maine. And the Cochranids are kind of spread out throughout. He does spend a lot of time there. Um, there is a church conference, I think, in like 1835 or 1837 that Brigham attends that's in Saco, Maine, and that's a big area of Cochranites. So just that alone, he probably did run into some. His first, well, not his first, I think she's his second polygamist wife, Augusta Adams Cobb. She comes from Boston. She was um, baptized by Samuel Smith and Orson Hyde. She's at their meetings where Cochranites were at. So circumstantially, you could say, you know, his wife was there. She ends up, you know, obviously getting involved in polygamy because she, you know, gets with Brigham as a polygamous wife. But I can't find anywhere where he actually, I think in his journal, he does have the word Cochranites, but he's talking about a preacher who's a Cochranite that he's sending some money to or something like that. So there's little hints here and there, but not really, really substantial. Okay, awesome. We're queuing up the next one now. Stanley Cloud says, how do you explain Abraham and Jacob's actions in having multiple wives? We know they were both very righteous men. I am so glad this question is being asked. Because this is, Abraham is one of the main excuses Brigham Young used. When Brigham Young um, started into polygamy, he had in his journal that he wanted to become like Abraham, a father of many nations. And so it's a misunderstanding of scripture. There's actually a Jewish rabbi, and I haven't been able to find it yet, but a, a man told me about it that believes that that actually could have been added to the Bible. Like You have to understand the Bible was edited and changed by the Deuteronomists. Um, just after, like, why, why was it so important that Lehi took the brass plates, the brass plates, they were plates. It was etched in brass. No one could alter them or change them. You could alter and change it when you translated them onto papyri or leather or whatever. But that's why Lehi actually took the most accurate scripture with him. So what was left behind in Jerusalem was um, papyri, leather, other scriptures. The Deuteronomist after Lehi left just coincidentally, time, timing-wise, um, you know, when they came back. So Jerusalem gets sacked. They're carried off captive. When they come back, they did a lot of editing to the Bible. One of the main things they took out was ascension theology. They tried to get rid of the idea that, that mankind could meet God and see him. So it's possible that Abraham and Jacob were given multiple wives to keep the narrative going like you wouldn't it be interesting if they were in the same boat as joseph but let's assume the the traditions of the jews there's a great book out there called traditions of the jews let's assume they really were polygamous well first of all abraham was never commanded ever to take hagar he only took hagar because sarah came to him she wanted a child she had been barren for 10 years they've been promised to be a mother and father of many nations. How is this going to happen? She doesn't have children. They lived at a time when there was a thing called the law of Hammurabi. 
the law of Hammurabi in their culture allowed a barren woman, woman who couldn't have children, to give her slave or her handmaid to her husband as a surrogate mother. The laws were very, very strict that it was as a surrogate mother to get pregnant and then the child was to become the actual wife's child. So Ishmael was supposed to be Sarah's child. The sin that Hagar did and the reason she got kicked out was because she wouldn't give up. She wouldn't obey the contract. She broke the contract. So then you, you flash forward to Jacob. Jacob's also not commanded to enter into polygamy. He's tricked into it by a father-in-law who wanted, the, according to the legends of the Jews, they knew Jacob was an exalted man, and they wanted he wanted his firstborn daughter, Leah, to be an exalted woman. Tricked Jacob, gave her Leah. At that time, Leah would have become a woman, a scorned woman, if he would have divorced her as soon as the trickery was found out. And so out of compassion and kindness, he kept Leah. And then both of those women, when they went through periods of barrenness, um, went into the surrogate wife law and had surrogate wives. But the main point is hundreds of men in the scriptures who are prophets and only two we know of that did polygamy. So men, neither of them were commanded to. I think it shows that it wasn't, if it, even if it was in their hearts, men can repent. Like I said, God's very gracious and merciful, and we can repent and come back into full fellowship with God. Right on. This one's from Leo.DesignDude. Allegedly, Brigham and others who were serving missions in England, where they claim to have had revelations about spiritual wifery. Did you research the England connection? Yes. And Brigham does say that. Lorenzo Snow says that, that they received revelations in England, uh, personal revelations. Before they um, met Joseph, right? Yes. So they're there in 1839, 1840. So while they're there in England, receiving these personal revelations and entering into polygamy then, um, John Bennett's back in Nauvoo. So they come back to John Bennett's story going on. So do you think they're going to tell Joseph, guess what? We got these revelations and we brought our wives home with us from England. No way. Not when they saw how John Bennett got treated. They went way underground, kept it very... Um, secret. Okay, so Linda Hopkins is asking, why do you think the church doesn't come clean on the true story of the church and origins of polygamy? So I think a lot of it is that, the, so when Joseph died, there became a power vacuum. He had actually um, ordained Hiram to be his successor, uh, Hiram dies just before he does. So there's no successor in the presidency, no successor in the priesthood, no prophet. They're left without anyone. And so there became what they call the succession crisis. William Marks, um, Emma wanted William Marks to be the trustee of the church. Sidney Rigdon claimed he'd received a revelation that he was supposed to. Brigham Young, um, when Brigham Young first came before the church, his um, platform was the, the 12, just like when Jesus Christ died and the church went forward on the shoulders of the 12 apostles, that they were in a similar situation. And so the 12 apostles needed to carry the church on. 
And so it was actually put up for a vote. And um, not everybody voted for Brigham. And those who did vote for him were the ones who went west with him. So, I, and I actually forgot what your whole question was. I'm so sorry. What was the rest of the question? Oh, why they did the origins. So that is part of it. Is a succession of it, right? So they got to, so what happened was Brigham comes out to Utah. He comes to Utah specifically to get away from the United States government so he could practice polygamy within, without it because he was, it's illegal in the United States. So he comes to Utah so he can practice it. Well, the United States starts getting in their business and, and now wants to fight them on it and said to them, Brigham's big argument was, well, it's freedom of religion. And the United States came back with, okay, well, you claim your religion started with Joseph Smith. So you have to prove to us that it's an original tenant of Joseph Smith's faith. So why is there 1852 when they announce it? It's all about politics. So that's what Brigham does, right? So he turns it into, he, he basically makes a story to prove to the United States that they can legally do it. So the church today, I think that you could say that they're apologetics for Brigham. They don't know how to handle the succession crisis. Like, what does it mean for them if they came clean about Joseph? But probably, honestly, it's just ignorance. It's probably, I grew up believing that Joseph was a polygamist. I have time to study it out. These men that run the church, it's a full-time job. Like they, they don't have time to study this stuff out. They just have to rely on the people who write their white papers, the people who write the Joseph Smith papers, the people who write the saints. So a lot of it just could be that they just don't know. Even in some of their recorded face-to-face -face meetings with, with some of the 12, they, they often mm -hmm. have a church historian present and yes. they'll to them and yeah. have them answer some of the harder questions. And that's okay. Right. Not everybody can, can know everything about everything, but no, I mean, I don't, and I have time to study. Right. But uh, hopefully they can go to hemlocknots.com and just read some timelines. If, I know, right. And diversion, you know? So um, Amanda Dykeman is saying, knowing what you know about Brigham, has that affected your feelings towards the modern day church? She's probably referring to the LDS Utah church. I'm guessing. Right. Right. Okay. Um, like I said, I went, I went through in many ways. So I found that when, the, when you tell the Lord, when, when you tell him something that you want a closer relationship with him, he, he goes to work to prove if you're serious or not. And so he came at me, he threw things at me in a variety of ways. It was extremely difficult. It was an extremely difficult time. Um, and what I came out of that time with was an incredible appreciation for the Lord, an incredible appreciation for Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, and an understanding that earthly institutions can only get you so far they, the, the LDS Church has done so much incredible good in my life. I mean, I had times before I, when I was really questioning Joseph and whether he was a fallen prophet or not, I had times when I would be getting ready for the day and looking at myself in the mirror and saying, what would I do if I die and find out that the church was all a hoax? 
And I would say, well, it gave me so much good. It has done so much good in my life. I used to be an incredibly, incredibly shy and awkward kid, like paralyzingly shy. But the LDS church can't say no to when your bishop asks you to do something. So I had callings that I had to talk to people. I had church assignments to stand up and speak in church. You know, I mean, but just even the values and the morals and the focus on my family, I mean, just done so much good for me. But today I'm actually, if if I'm going to be completely transparent, I'm not active. Um, And that's because I'm not really, really want to be. And, and I'm not really allowed to be. We, we basically kind of have a truce with our local leaders that if uh, we don't come and preach what we know, then they won't excommunicate us. So that's where I'm at today. But I believe very much in the Book of Mormon. My husband and I have church every single Sunday at home. So we were doing home church before Nelson made it a thing. <laughs> and we love it. Our kids come and we just read the Book of Mormon and study and it's great but i do miss the fellowship of the lds church and it it was a wonderful thing to be part of when we were active for sure they do a lot of things right that's for sure yeah um so we're about 12 minutes away from your commitment at eight do you how many more questions you want to take do you want to wrap it up here you throw them out throw me i do have a i do have a closing thing i want to say which will take me two or three minutes sure let's do one or two more so, questions, and then, you know, uh, maybe okay. six or seven minutes till we'll, we'll have you wrap it up, okay? Okay, the next one's from um, Patry Allred. How, do, how did the scholars come up with the names of Joseph's wives? What is their source material? Excellent, excellent question. So from what I've been able to tell, um, so like I was talking earlier about the Nauvoo Temple, it never got completed during Joseph and Hiram's lifetime. It was like maybe a story high when they died. So after they died, Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball um, decide that, well, they're actually told by another of the apostles that Joseph had said all the keys rest with the 12. So they actually didn't hear from Joseph himself. They hear from another apostle. So they decide, well, that means we have all the keys. They were seals we can seal. So they actually started doing sealings in people's homes um, and, but then they start really pushing for the, they, they keep that push up to get the temple finished. So in January of 1846, so a year and a half after Joseph's death, um, they get, they, they finally, they they know their time short. They're going to be being kicked out of Nauvoo. So they get the upper attic together as a kind of a temple and they start doing ceilings there. They, so there are records of those ceilings and those ceilings, what they did. So Brigham and Heber told women, if your husband's dead and you want to be sealed to him, we can stand as a proxy for your dead husband. You can be sealed to him, but you have to be sealed to me as a living husband or it doesn't work. So that was the early sealings. So they were, then they also were telling women, well, you be sealed. You can be sealed to Joseph or Hiram as a wife and then be sealed to me as a living husband. So then the church today calls those ceilings repeated ceilings. I don't know if Brigham called them repeated ceilings or if those were first time ceilings. I think they're first time ceilings, probably. 
or if they were repeated. So that's one way they got that list was from Brigham's list of women that he sealed to Joseph and then to himself. And then all, a word of mouth rumors, you know, women would be in Utah and it got, gave them kind of street cred or notoriety if they were one of Joseph's wives. And so um, the, a lot of the lists are just from word of mouth. That's why the number changes so often is it's, it's really just from people claiming it. So that's how. Awesome. Thank you. Let's do the last, last question here for this session. And then, you know, uh, maybe you can help answer some of the questions lingering on, on YouTube in the coming weeks. You know, okay. take a look at those. Um, all right. Last question. And then go ahead and, and wrap it up with your, your final statements. Okay. Dude is back and he wants to know what many people are wondering. Was there really a secret chamber who plotted against Joseph? Um, if there was, they didn't leave any evidence really behind. There's little, little bits and pieces of stuff. Um, I know I've read the book Secret Chamber just to get that idea and understanding. I've read through, um, some journals of those people, of early saints, letters. Um, I know that William Clayton, makes a statement in his journal. Um, Rob Fotheringham has an incredibly well done YouTube video on this subject. And just as it, on the subject of Joseph Smith's monogamy, it's really worth watching if you haven't seen it yet. It's very well done. Um, so it's, I, I don't really, I think if there was a secret chamber that they kept their cards pretty close to the vest and anything today would be, circumstantial it would be tying you know little pieces together um i do i do honestly believe there was a secret polygamy ring whether they call themselves a secret chamber whether they plotted to kill joseph i don't know but there was definitely a polygamy ring i mean there were there there are lots of the men who were married to polygamous wives before joseph died and so definitely that was going on, but whether they actually killed Joseph and Hiram, that's just so circumstantial. You could never prove it in a court of law. And unless more uh, evidence, sound evidence comes forward, we may just, but you know, the truth is, I mean, they died. Like we know they were killed. Is it going to change your testimony of the restoration of the book of Mormon or Jesus Christ to know who killed them. Because like I said, we got to separate the gospel from an institution. Now it could, it could shake up your foundation and, and testimony of an institution. If you found out that there were certain people involved in a plot to kill Joseph, um, but it, it should not affect the bottom line, which is, Joseph was the Lord's prophet. He was on the Lord's errand and, and he was killed by unscrupulous men and the names of those men we may never know, but the Lord does. And you just have to leave it in his hands. Awesome. Whitney, any closing remarks for the audience here? Yeah, I would like to um, leave some closing remarks. So thank you so much for having me on. Um, I really appreciate it. And I really want to thank everyone 
who's taken the time to read this book and to share it with others. I want you to know that I don't make any money off this, the sale of this book. Any um, royalties that I make are all donated to charity. This book was never written as a way to make money off anyone. And I am more than happy to, for people to share it, you know, buy one copy and share it around. I'm um, just so thank you so much for everyone who's supporting me. It's re I really thought if I wrote this and only one person read it, it was worth it. You know, one soul, you bring one soul unto God. How precious are they in his sight? And so it's just so humbling to me that more than one person has read it and found value in it. So just in final thoughts, um, whether or not Joseph Smith was a polygamist is only important insofar as it helps us to come to know the God who we worship. Our God's characteristics, perfections, and attributes. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The truth will make you free. It can be painful. It can be difficult. Reach out to others for help. But don't give up searching for the truth. And ultimately, that truth is Jesus Christ. As Joseph taught, the things of God are of great import in time and experience and careful and ponderous and solemn thought can only find them out. In March of 1839, while Joseph languished in Liberty Jail, the Lord prophesied, The ends of the earth shall inquire after your name, and fools shall have you in derision, and hell shall rage against you, while the pure in heart and the wise and the noble and the virtuous shall seek counsel and authority and blessings constantly from under your hand. And your people shall never be turned against you by the testimony of traitors. And although their influence shall cast you into trouble and into bars and walls, you shall be had in honor. And but for a small moment, and your voice shall be more terrible in the midst of your enemies than the fierce lion because of your righteousness, and your God shall stand by you forever and ever. I refuse to believe the testimony of traitors any longer. Anyone who claims that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy when he didn't, is not his people. They are traitors to Joseph Smith. I desire to be the pure in heart, the wise, the noble, the virtuous, who seek counsel, authority, and blessings constantly from under Joseph's hand. I desire to help redeem Joseph's good name and to be numbered among his people. And I want to thank everyone on here who is doing likewise. This is so exciting how many people in this world today are waking up to the truth about Joseph Smith and are being brave enough to share it far and wide. People like Richard and Pamela Price who have been fighting that battle for decades, for almost their entire life. I think Pamela's in her 90s now. I don't know even know if she's still alive. But those are the kind of people that I want to be like who have fiercely defended Joseph's good name and are numbered among his people. And so I leave this with you and thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Whitney. We really appreciate your insights tonight and for all your hard work 
in putting this thing together. So we're going to give away 20 copies to the people who participated um, with their questions tonight, but the rest of you can find this on Amazon very easily. It's a, it's a really good read. It's very detail oriented. It's a great book. Lots of footnotes there at the bottom for you. Uh, but again, Whitney, thanks for uh, sharing a large portion of your life and your discoveries with us tonight. Thank you. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye everybody.